Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just wanted to remind everyone about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spike supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spike supporters can comment on articles, get a discount on all items in our shop, and bookmark articles as you browse. Plus, you get free or discounted access to events. It was great to see so many Spike supporters at my recent live podcast with Julia Hartley Brewer, and we have plenty of exciting events in store for you. Spike supporters is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere, can read us. We're really grateful for that. If you don't give to Spike yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. LGB Alliance have been called a hate group simply by virtue of the fact that we don't have a T in our name and it's all because we disrupt the narrative. The narrative has been you support LGBT rights, you support LGBTQ rights, you support LGBTQIA plus rights. You must support all those things as if they were all belong together. Otherwise you're you're transphobic, you're homophobic, you're a bigot. So we resuscitated the idea that same-sex sexual orientation is a thing. And that is why we are considered so dangerous that there is this campaign against us. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Bev Jackson. Bev is one of the founders of the LGB Alliance. She has a long history of fighting for gay rights. She was a founding member of Britain's Gay Liberation Front. She's also worked in the area of refugees' rights and on various other progressive causes. Bev has been a teacher, a university lecturer, and a translator. She's author of A Month with Starfish, volunteering with refugees on the Greek island of Lesbos. Bev and others founded the LGB Alliance in 2019 to advance the interests of lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people to stand up for the rights of same-sex attracted people. The LGB Alliance will be holding its 2021 conference on Thursday, the 21st of October, discussing everything from how gender identity is erasing the gay experience in gay rights to the importance of standing up for free speech in a time of cancel culture. More details about the conference can be found at lgballiance.org.uk. So, Bev, my first question for you, I guess, is a very basic standard one, which is why you and your colleagues felt the need to set up the LGB Alliance. What do you think was missing or what had gone missing or what had gone wrong with 
gay rights politics and lesbian rights politics, which made you feel that this new organisation was necessary? Well, thanks uh, for asking that, Brendan. And um, what happened was that we noticed that when Stonewall changed direction in, in 2015, that the rights of LGB people in particular were gradually sliding away, and in particular when they changed to gender rather than sex. That had um, serious repercussions for LGB people, and we assumed that we could just discuss it and we could arrive um, at, at a better compromise position. And so we, we made many efforts independently. Kate Harris and I did not know each other. Um, Kate used to work in Stonewall, and I was a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front. Uh, I never expected to have to get involved <laughs> in gay um, rights politics 50 years later, but there you go. Anyway, we met... And we had both been trying independently to contact Stonewall and say, listen, um, something's going wrong here. Let, let's let's talk about it. And they just flatly refused both to talk to Kate. Kate and, and Johnny Best put out um, a petition which was signed by 10,000 people calling on Stonewall to engage. They ignored it. Um, I wrote a very, very long letter and trying to engage, and they ignored that. And when Kate and I met in April 2019, um, we continued to try and engage with Stonewall. And the reason we had to find found um, LGB Alliance is that they just refused to talk to us. Um, the, the, the mantra was no debate, and it just wasn't possible. And that's why we thought, well, okay, if they absolutely won't talk to us, we'll have to find, found LGB Alliance in order to revive, basically, the, the gay and lesbian rights movement. So I want to come back to that issue of no debate, because that's a recurring theme in the discussion around the, the kinds of issues that you are interested in, this, the lack of debates. So I want to come back to that specifically. But first, you mentioned the word gender there and the, the shift towards gender yeah. within Stonewall and, of course, within many other organisations too. And I want to tease out with you um, what impact you think that embrace of gender and gender ideology has had on the rights of same-sex attracted people, which is how we used to refer to gay people and lesbians. Um, and it's how you guys refer to it in the purpose of the LGB Alliance. You say this is about advancing the interests of lesbians, gay men and bisexuals and standing up for the rights of same-sex attracted people. So very clear use of that word sex rather than gender. So if you could just outline what impact you think it has when gender is em embraced above the idea of sex itself. Well, let, let's remember that um, roughly 69 countries around the world criminalise activity between people of the same sex. Um, and that is very clear. It's, it's biological sex. Um, and fortunately, we, uh, in, in the UK, sex between men was decriminalised in, in 1967. And, and gradually we've moved towards a situation in which um, uh, sex between people of the same sex has become more accepted. And it has always been the case that um, this is about same-sex sexual orientation, and that is what is protected in the Equality Act. Now, when you start talking about gender, you get into a very misty area because people use that word in, in three different ways. And I, I, I think this is something I'm going to keep coming back to, Brendan, in, as we talk to each other, is what do words mean? Mm. And, you know, we have to, in order to communicate, we sort of, we, we always have to know what we're talking about. And the word gender is used in at least three different ways. I mean, some people use it as a synonym for sex, you know, like in, in gender pay gap or something. Some people use it um, 
as I would use it, to talk about stereotypes, you know, that you expect a girl to, to, to behave in certain ways, we expect a boy to behave in certain ways. Those are stereotypes which we all, I think, on all sides of this argument, want to overcome. So that's gendered stereotypes is a negative word. And then there's this third meaning, gender, in the sense of some sort of inner essence that you've got, that you can have an inner essence of male inside a female body. Now, for those people who who have that, who feel that they have a gender or a gender identity, you know, I, I appreciate that those people have that feeling or belief. It strikes me as a kind of spiritual thing, a kind of, of, of a male soul inside a female body. Um, I don't have one of those, and I personally think it's a very sexist idea, the idea that in if you've got a male body that you ought to be a certain way, and if you're if you're a different way, then you're more female. I, I, I think that's a very sexist concept. But what has it done specifically for gays and lesbians? Well, what it's done specifically is it has sort of blurred and in a sense, I don't like to use the word erased because it's a bit gets a bit overused, doesn't it? But it obscures what homosexuality is. Let's use that word homosexuality, same sex. It's the same sex. If you say same gender, if you tell me you're, you're a woman, um, and therefore it's fine for you to go on a lesbian dating site because you, you're attracted to other women. And uh, I mean, this makes a nonsense of what homosexuality is all about. It just sort of, it gets rid of it. And this has real life consequences. And I think the real life consequences have always been from the beginning much clearer for women, for lesbians, than for men. And that's why, you know, um, LGB Alliance was set up by two lesbians, because we saw from the beginning, this is having really a real life negative impact on lesbians in many different ways. Okay, I want to, to come on to the question of um, lesbian rights in particular, because I think you're right, it's similar to the broader trans discussion, which also impacts more on women than it does on men. Um, it, I, see, I think that's very clear in, in how it relates specifically to the question of uh, gay people and lesbians. It has a greater impact, as far as I can tell, on lesbians and on lesbian rights and on the very idea of lesbianism, which gets called into question if a male person can identify as a lesbian, can enter into a lesbian spaces, can go onto lesbian dating apps, can take part in lesbian protests and, and uh, lesbian pride and so on. So is this problem really, I mean, fundamentally in relation to the question of how this impacts on lesbians, is it the fact that when a male-bodied person can identify as a lesbian, it makes a mockery of the whole idea of what a lesbian is and what particular rights and spaces lesbians might need. Because it seems to me that that whole thing that has been fought for for a very long time is completely undercut if you redefine lesbians so broadly that I could potentially identify as a lesbian next week if the fancy took me. So does it, is it that it, it really breaks down all those kinds of gains and understandings that have been made by lesbian rights activists over the past 50 years? Yes, I, I definitely think that's true. And one of the things that's really unfortunate is whenever we, we, we try to talk about lesbian rights or gay rights or, or bisexual rights or women's rights, it gets called a trans rights discussion, which is it's, it's extraordinary. You, it, it's as if we cannot talk about lesbian rights or women's rights. Oh, it's about trans rights. No, it's actually not. It's about our rights and not the rights of this other group of people. We, we have a lot of unscrambling of the omelette to do. Because when the um, the T was added to LGB, 
Um, and so many young people in particular have grown up with LGBT being a natural kind of, 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 of cluster of letters. There's no questioning of why these letters belong together. They, they don't belong mm. together because LGB is about sexual orientation. It's about relationships. It's about the kind of relationships that you want to form sexually in particular. T is about something else entirely. And trans people, people who call themselves trans, and that's an enormous variety of different kinds of people who have, as far as I can see, rather little in common with each other. And we could talk about that. But it has to do with their their identity, their, the way they see themselves. Now, I mean, this whole thing about gender identity, I see as something rather artificial and unfortunate that's been stuck in between biological sex, people are male or female, and individual personality. You and I each have individual personalities, and I've got a millions of different identities, or, or my identity is made up of millions of different things. I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm, I happen to be a mother, I'm a lesbian, I'm a translator, I'm European, I'm British, I'm Dutch, I'm millions of different things, and those all go up to make your identity. I don't have a gender identity. I, as I say, I find that a sexist concept. But this has really confused things for lesbians. But the, the way that you presented it as a sort of incursions onto lesbian spaces is, is one really important area, the fact that lesbian dating sites are kind of 40 to 50% made up of male-bodied individuals who call themselves lesbians. And, of course, this wouldn't be a problem for somebody like me. I would just say no, thank you, and whatever. But, I mean, it's young people I particularly think of. Can you imagine, you know, a young girl, 18, 19 years of age, looking for her first girlfriend and thinking, oh, that person looks male i think i'll say no they say politely no and then some people not all but some people will aggressively say why mm. and then they have to try and figure out how to say no without being transphobic and some very unfortunate exchanges occur there but there's another area which is i find even more disturbing than that and that is the the sort of just the the way that the whole word lesbian is being kind of trashed mm. and therefore lesbian lifestyles and existence is being trashed and you've heard maybe that some of the ex-clinicians from the Tavistock saying that lesbianism is the bottom of the heap so young girls who find themselves attracted to other girls they don't want to be lesbian it's not cool it's not cool to be lesbian if they're a bit butch you know their peers at school will say oh you're cool you're trans and they'll think okay maybe i don't know and and what that leads to is is really I think that the worst part of this, which is forty thousand, roughly forty thousand girls and young women on GoFundMe raising money to have their breasts cut off. Seventy five percent of the of the teens being referred to the gender clinic are girls, and and their same sex attractors. Seventy percent of them are attracted to other girls, and twenty percent bisexual. This is an LGB issue, above all. Sorry, that was rather a long, a long kind of answer. That to was your a, question. a very clear and very useful answer, and it brings me on to some related issues I wanted to touch upon with you in relation to some of the stuff you've just said there. In terms of the denigration of lesbianism, I think one of the things I find most striking is in the in the rather eccentric discussion that we now have around the so-called problem of women who are only attracted to biological women what i find, and and you will find some trans activists as you say not all but some who will describe that kind of attraction as genital fetishism for example why why are you fetishizing a person's genitals can't you be attracted to a lesbian who also happens to have a penis you see these kinds of discussions particularly now they might sound 
um, rare and crazy to, to those of us who are not enmeshed in youthful online culture. But if you look at websites like TikTok and other places where much younger people hang out, they do have these kinds of discussions. They do use, use this kind of terminology. And it strikes me that we're almost reversing to a view of lesbians in particular as somehow perverted. Some, there's something wrong with them. You know, what, what is wrong with you that you would only be attracted to someone of the same sex? Isn't that creepy? Isn't that weird? Which is something that used to be said by homophobes. And it's now being said by those who, for some reason or other, fall under the umbrella of LGBT and who are extreme trans activists. Or well, they still are homophobes. Yeah. They- they are homophobes, Brendan. They're the new homophobes. And and I, I thought that one of the things that you said there that was really interesting was, was online. And it's got very much to do with this online culture, hasn't it? Mm. Because if you are sort of, you, you spend, and I think a lot of these people spend like most of their lives, a lot of their lives online with this maybe online sort of um, virtual avatars and so on. And, and so live a kind of disembodied existence which encourages a kind of estrangement and alienation from their bodies. I mean, I spoke to, to, to one um, American psychotherapist who, you know, in, in treating patients, say, from the age of 15 to 25, some of them don't have any concept of what homosexuality is because they think it's kind of rude to refer yeah. to your genitals. You're not supposed to, that, that's, you're not supposed to talk about genitals. That, that's yuck. You're, you're, you're supposed to only talk about how you are in your mind and, and this strikes me as very much to do with this exaggerated emphasis on an online existence. And you sort of find yourself wondering how many of these people are able to have real sexual relationships as opposed to whatever they do and get up to uh, online. On that issue of woke homophobia, as, as people have referred to it, uh, the way in which there is this, there has been, in my view, of quite clear rehabilitation of homophobic ideas, a sense of disdain or disgust for people who are same-sex attracted or who, or who insist on rights and spaces for same-sex attracted people. There is this growing disdain amongst um, the new homophobes, as you refer to them. Um, and you, you mentioned earlier the rising number of girls who are going to gender identity clinics, to Tavistock, to other places. And the problem there, as, as you have talked about and others have too, is there does seem to be a situation where most of these girls are same-sex attracted. They were, they are lesbians. They are becoming lesbians. They're discovering that sexuality. And they're almost being put through a process of being corrected, of being medically corrected. So if you're tomboyish, maybe a bit butch, or you're a girl who prefers girls, maybe the truth is you are a man and you need to be corrected and put into the right body and so we've ended up, haven't we, in a situation where we are giving drugs to young lesbians in order to correct what is considered to be their wrong gender or their problematic approach to life. Yeah, and you know what that's called, don't you, Brendan? It's called conversion therapy. That is conversion therapy. That is, and, and that is why it's, I mean, the most difficult issue that we have to explain to people is the issue about the um, attempts to enforce a, a ban on conversion therapy. It is unbelievably complicated to explain why we oppose this ban. People think, well, why, how could you possibly be opposed to a ban on conversion therapy? So can I try and explain that now? Please. First of all, if you look at conversion therapy um, about cons- sexual orientation, then everybody thinks of those t- horrific images of, of, of people being attached to electrodes and, and having uh, given electric shock therapy in order to try and cure them of their homosexuality. That is, of course, 
utterly disgusting, and fortunately we have not seen that in the UK since the 1970s. Although there may be certain uh, religious um, uh, sects that try to talk people out of their sexual orientation, I I know nothing, I'm not uh, an authority on, on religious practices, But um, we know that it isn't possible anyway to talk someone out of their sexual orientation. It's not possible and it's cruel and disgusting to try. I'm very clear on that. We are very clear on that. We totally oppose it. We do not think that it's necessary to bring in new legislation to ban it because legislation exists. It doesn't happen in clinical contexts and in religious contexts if there is any, uh, um, or or family contexts, if there is any abusive situation, laws already exist to prohibit that. So as far as sexual orientation is concerned, we do not think that a ban on conversion therapy is needed now at this point in time in the UK. But what has happened is that those who are advocating a ban on conversion therapy have added to sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, that is a completely separate issue. It's a completely separate issue. And then you drill down and see what is it that the people who are advocating a ban on gender identity conversion therapy, as opposed to sexual orientation, which we've dealt with, what do they want exactly? And the best place to look for that is the laws that have been passed in Australia, which MPs in in, in the UK Parliament have recommended as good models for what we need in the UK. And you look in Victoria and you see that if if a girl comes to a gender clinic, girl age 14, 15, and she says she's a boy, she's very sure she's a boy, she's not questioning, but she's absolutely sure she's a boy, then the only way to deal with that is to affirm that and to put her on puberty blockers, which inevitably leads to a path towards cross-sex hormones and, and the rest of it. If you don't do that, if you do not affirm, then you are accused of conversion therapy and there, there is, there's up to 10 years in prison for that. So that is what they want to enforce. And in fact, it's very interesting. I, I recently spoke to a GP in the UK who um, spoke to me confidentially about the the increasing number of girls that he's seeing at his surgery who say that they're boys. And he was worried about this and, and contacted the, 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 the GMC. And they said, well, I mean, if they're boys, then you must um, make sure that you must affirm that and, and you must send them to the gender clinic. Because if you're not, if you don't do that, you are imposing your own ideology, which is now this is upside down, isn't it? What are we talking about here? These are girls who say they're boys. And the only way to deal with them is to affirm. If that becomes law, and it's already apparently practice, but if it becomes law, then anybody, a psychotherapist who tries to explore with a girl why she is so sure she's a boy, what what other factors there there may be. We know that autism spectrum is is an important factor, up up to 30%. We know that there are often difficult, complex family circumstances. And we know above all that there's often homophobia, either in the family or in the circle. And certainly online influences play a huge role. So what we're seeing here is this so-called ban on conversion therapy for gender identity is the opposite. It's the opposite. It's trying to impose conversion therapy on teenagers, many of whom, most of whom, uh, would grow up LGB if not medicalized. And that's why, so we must separate them. You cannot 
deal with gender identity and sexual orientation together or you get into a huge mess. And that is our message. But as you can see, it's very complex. Mm. Anybody who's not familiar with this material will probably have to listen to that explanation four times to understand what <laughs> I just said. Uh, no, that was very clear indeed. And I think that's a really important argument to have in the public arena, given the, the growing numbers of young people, especially young girls who are going through life-changing treatment, the consequences of which are not entirely understood. We know that there is a, a strong element of regret in some of these cases. And we know that there is there are family tensions and difficulties when a child transforms quite radically over a period of time. So um, I think talking about the way in which the supposed ban on conversion therapy is actually an enforcement of a different form of conver conversion therapy, I think is a very important discussion to be having. Yeah, yeah. And can I just talk, you mentioned regret. Can I just point out that, that one of the, that a lot of false st statistics are banded about. There's false suicide statistics and there's false statistics on detransitioners. They say, oh, you'll often hear 1%, it's less than 1% have regret. Well, we have no idea, actually, that that 1% comes from an ancient and greatly discredited uh, um, survey of a very small number of adults. It's got nothing to do with our present cohort of teenage girls. So we don't know how many because no, nobody is researching it because research is also clamped down on it, it's suppressed. But we know that a lot of, of young women in their 20s are coming forward, like Kira Bell, who had um, a gender treatment when they were younger and who are really angry now that the medical profession didn't give them proper care that they deserved. Absolutely. Um, okay, what you've just outlined there is, a, is another good reason, as you say, why um, biological sex and gender identity need to be kept separate. These are different things. And I want to talk to you a little bit about biological sex. Now, unfortunately, it has become virtually a form of hate speech to argue that biological sex exists, that biological sex is binary, that sex is immutable, that you're born a certain sex and you will die the same sex. So those were traditionally understood as biological facts, things that most people appreciated and understood and learned at school. They have very swiftly become a form of hate speech. If you were to express these ideas in public now, as we see in relation to someone like most recently Kathleen Stock, for example, but many others too, you will be hounded and harassed and demonized and no platformed. So just to kick off this section of the discussion, I want to ask you if you could just outline how you understand biological sex and why the LGB Alliance argues that sex is an immutable phenomenon. I'm not a biologist, but I do know that the most important feature in distinguishing between males and females is small gametes, large gametes. There are no medium-sized gametes. There are um, ova and, and there are sperm, and there, we don't have spurgs or spegs or any of those things. And I would invite anyone to go online to the many d uh, discussions of this, explaining what the difference is between small and large gametes. Um, and also, uh, anybody who's ever tried to get pregnant will know if there, you know, the, the, any woman who has ever tried to get pregnant, this is something that only women can do, will know that they will need the sperm from a male in order to get pregnant. I mean, these facts exist. It is, it is very foolish to, to pretend that these are our views or opinions. These are simply facts. I, um, and uh, um, every single person on the planet was born from a woman 
we know what women are. And trying to pretend that we don't know what they are or that women are a, it's rather a difficult concept to, to explain. And, and you see Keir Starmer tying themselves in all sorts of knots to, 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 uh, to, to say, no, you can't really say that only women have a cervix. And, 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 and Dave Lammy seeming to think that you can grow a cervix if you take enough hormones. I mean, these are just ridiculous, utterly ridiculous uh, um, assertions. And we seem to have arrived in a very odd post-factual world. I saw someone the other day accusing someone of fact-shaming them. In other words, bringing up facts to prove that what they were saying was a load of nonsense. No, 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 you mustn't do that. Fact-shaming. Well, that's a great phrase for today, isn't it? You have, or across the political spectrum, there are people who just attack facts, as if there's no objective reality anymore. Oh, you stop being, no, it's very elitist to talk about objective reality. You mustn't do that. And you see that across the political spectrum. On the, on the right, you see people who um, are uh, anti-vaxxer, anti-vaxxers who, who refuse to accept scientific uh, um, facts uh, about vaccines or who refuse to accept um, scientific facts uh, about climate change. And on the left, you see um, people who refuse to accept um, facts about biological reality. And I find this actually one of the most worrying things that we're having to deal with, just the refusal to accept that there is such a thing as, as objective reality, that what matters is a person's lived experience. And this, I think, is, is perhaps the most worrying thing of all. Absolutely. And um, you mentioned there, you said something there, which is apparently very shocking. Only women have a cervix. Only women get pregnant. Only women give birth. These kinds of sentences and phrases that would have been per perfectly acceptable just 10 years ago are now, as you say, someone like Keir Starmer ties himself in knots, trying not to say it. Even Boris Johnson, who poses as the kind of, uh, uh, you know, a critic of some of the crazy ideas of our time, even Boris Johnson, when he was put on the spot on this issue, kind of ermed and ard and was fairly reluctant to say that only women have a cervix. So coming back to the woman question, if you like, and um, you said earlier on that the word erasing is overused, and it is overused, particularly when people say they feel erased because someone has criticised their identity or something. But it does seem in this case in particular that there is a real risk of the word woman being erased and the way in which various health bodies, for example, will replace the word woman with people or some other medicalized term to avoid saying the W word. And there are many examples of that now. And I wonder, I wanted to ask you, what impact do you think it has on women's rights and women's ability to talk about their rights and to talk about what they might specifically need if they can't even use the word woman and some of those basic terms that have been around for <laughs> centuries and centuries? What impact do you think the the myopic policing of language in this discussion has on people's ability to talk about those issues. And I think that's a very well put myopic policing of language. Um, and with the, the worst examples we've seen were, were uh, with the ACLU, which was once, you know, it's called the American Civil Lib Liberties Union, now actually rewriting the words of one of the greatest feminists of, of the 20th century, uh, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and pretending that she said people instead of women. That was a, that was a shocking example. Mm. And also the Lancet, which was once a respected um, medical journal um, with, with its bodies, bodies, not even living creatures, but bodies with vaginas. I mean, we've seen some really shocking examples. But we did notice that the prostate 
Cancer Association refused to change, uh, said, it, no, we must use the word men because we want to make sure that as many people as possible are reached. So it's, it's, it's a completely misogynistic drive. This. We are, nobody's trying to, to get rid of the word men. They're trying to get rid of the word women. And I see this as very, very closely connected to the fact that all these teenagers and uh, teenage girls and young women are trying to escape from womanhood. It's not cool to be a woman anymore. Let, you know, it's, it's cooler to be trans. It's cooler to be a man. Uh, you don't want to be a woman because the whole word woman is becoming tainted. So in order to hit back at that, we have to use the word woman as much as possible. We have to ensure that, that young girl, that girls and, and young women have good, positive role models. And this is where we hope to uh, achieve that at LGB Alliance. We have to ensure that, that, that kids have have good positive role models as, as lesbians and as gay men that they can grow up confidently in their sexual orientation and uh, instead get away from this, this peculiar idea that there's something wrong with their bodies and that they, they need to change them. It's having a, a devastating effect. And, um, we, we get every day, we get messages from people who say, yes, um, I, I, I don't know how to say this. I can't say this at my work because I'm afraid of getting fired. Um, so there is this huge, uh, uh, fear, uh, and we have to overcome that. Everybody who is able to speak out must speak out now. I have a lot of sympathy for people who are teachers, social workers, nurses, who say, I cannot speak out at work. I can't because I'd lose my job. I mean, they have families to support. They have, they have to live. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. But there are a lot, but I have no sympathy for the MPs who are not speaking out. They have to represent their constituents. I know that Rosie Duffield is not the only woman in the Labour Party who has strong views on this opinion. I'm the, she says uh, herself, I think there are at least uh, uh, another 20, but they, they, they're not speaking out. I, I think it's really important in all political parties for MPs to speak out, and, and as many have done in the House of Lords, and you can see the difference uh, there. You've got to speak out uh, against this vile attack on our language, on our reality. And what's happened to Kathleen Stock in the, in the last week, but not just in the last week, actually for years, but it has intensified recently, is truly shocking mm. that her own union, the Union of Sussex University and the, the, the National Union speaking out instead of supporting her in the face of, of astonishing attacks uh, and, and efforts to to get her fired, which have caused her to have to teach online and to be uh, advised to take security. And she's the most moderate voice possible. You cannot find a single thing she writes which is transphobic in the sense of containing any any hatred or any fear or, or even dislike. She's extraordinarily respectful uh, and treats everyone with respect. The idea that such a person should be vilified for the way she refers to biological sex and to women and to the rights of LGB people is really a disgrace. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to our democracy. Yeah, I had um, Kathleen Stock on, on this podcast a few months ago when to talk about her book, Material yeah. Girls, and very moderate, very measured, uh, backed up with facts and making, and more importantly, and this is the, a question I wanted to put to you, she's also making arguments which, and I know political words kind of lose their meaning over time, but she's making arguments that would have been considered progressive 
just a decade or so ago in terms of wanting to secure women's rights, wanting to secure uh, more understanding and respect for what a lesbian is, why lesbians need certain rights. Those kinds of arguments that would have been put you on the progressive, liberal, whatever words we want to use, that side of politics, now saying those things can get you hounded and so on. So one thing I wanted to ask you, there's a couple of things I want to explore with you now about the in the shocking intolerance that surrounds this debate, which the LGB Alliance has experienced to a huge degree. But to, just to kick that off, I wanted to ask you, um, following on from what you just said, how do you think these prejudices have been rehabilitated so swiftly? So you said earlier on that you were a founding member of the Gay Liberation Front a few decades ago. You now find yourself, 50 years later, having to defend pretty basic rights and even basic language to talk about what um, homosexual people might need and require. You've also talked there about how the word woman is being erased and the misogynistic undertones and overtones that often accompany discussions about trans issues and, um, and language and so on. In my mind, I thought we had achieved a situation in society where gay people were pretty much equal, were no longer treated as badly as they were in the 70s and the 80s, Women had equal rights, even if that wasn't always manifested in the real world and in public life and so on. But we understood that women were equal to men and, and ought to enjoy the same opportunities. But suddenly there's been this shift, this downward spiral where we now, people like you now find yourself having to stand up for the right to say the word woman, the right of lesbians to organize independently if they so choose. How do you think that situation has come about and so quickly? What's been the real problem there? Well, there are many different. I'm thinking of many different answers to that question. Because one one of the cleverest things I think that um, our detractors have done is to use many words have been used in in a sense which means the opposite of what they really mean. We, we've already discussed this in terms of conversion therapy, but it also applies to a word like inclusive. Um, inclusive means excluding people like me, <laughs> and there's progressive, which means um, uh, uh, which means the opposite. I mean, we consider we're the we're the real progressives because we think um, every girl and every boy should be completely free to develop as uh, to their full potential without being constrained by gender stereotypes, and we consider that the the real progressive point of view. So, how has it happened? One point of view that is sometimes expressed, um, and I'm not sure if I am 100% on board with this, but I think it has a lot of um, credence behind it, is that many people are afraid that they were too slow to, to adopt um, pro-gay attitudes. And when the T was added to LGB, they thought they didn't want to be too, too um, slow in that case. And they are perhaps quite lazily assuming that it's simply this is uh, gender identity is the next step towards civil liberties and anyone who's opposing that is is anti but i mean i have su supported progressive causes all my life i was not only a founding member of the gay liberation front i fought against uh, uh, you know i was in the anti apartheid movement i've demonstrated against the iraq war and 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 uh, in fact before i got involved with lgb alliance i was working um, with refugees 
um, and uh, and wrote a book about my, uh, some volunteer work I did with refugees. So I, I have fought with progressive causes all my life. So so the most shocking thing for me is to suddenly find mm. that what I'm doing now, which is what I've believed all my life, and I am a, a, a true progressive, um, is is being associated with all sorts of weird causes that I have nothing to do with. I'm not a religious person. I'm, I'm a, I am a, a secular Jew from background, but that is not part of, of the. Well, I don't. Think Think it's a very important part of the way I approach this, but um, uh, we have no relationship whatsoever with the um, Christian right, the religious right in America, which which is fighting a different battle of its own, which is actually homophobic and against women's reproductive rights. We have nothing to do with those people. They they are uh, the antithesis of what we stand for. But it's been quite effective pretending that we have something to do with them, and because Americans always assume that everyone is uh, in the whole world follows the same American pattern, um, the Americans who come onto our timeline assume that because there is this movement of the religious right in the United States, that we must be the same sort of thing. And that is, um, it, it's, it's really unfortunate. And it's been quite effective in colouring the public perception, some part of the, the, of the public perception of what, what we stand for. Yes, I want to come on to that question of... Um the colouring of perceptions and the methods that are used to depict a group like the LGB Alliance as a hate group, uh, which doesn't deserve charity status, which doesn't deserve to be on any online funding platforms, which shouldn't be invited to party conferences. The ruthlessness and the intolerance with which any group such as yours is attacked and demonised, I think actually for a significant section of the public, I think that probably makes them want to find out a bit more and to find out why there is this extraordinary intolerance to one group of people or to one particular argument. Uh, but I want to ask you a couple of questions about that culture and climate that has emerged on this issue, because I have found the demonization of the LGB alliance to be genuinely shocking. And I say that as someone who's been writing about the culture of intolerance and the assault on freedom of speech for a long time. But even I have found this really deeply disturbing. So could you just describe what that has been like and what it is like for you guys who work there and run it and push forward those arguments to be referred to as a hate group, to be talked about in that kind of way? What, what impact does it have on you and what does it, what does it make you think about the current political climate we're operating in? Well, obviously, we're we're fairly resilient people, and um, we, we've encountered this since the very first day we founded. When when Alison Bailey put out the tweet uh, um, saying that 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 we had founded, um, and and Stonewall retweeted that, we have been called a hate group simply by virtue of the fact that we don't have a T um, in our name from the very first day we were founded. And so what, so what happened after we were founded is that we were absolutely deluged by messages on both sides. So messages saying, thank God you've arrived. Uh, and, and, when, uh, and when are you starting up in Canada? When are you starting up? I mean, this literally from the very first day, hundreds and hundreds of messages of support and gratitude. And at the same time, a great many messages of hate and, and anger from um, people who assumed that because we didn't have a T in our name, um, that we were hateful. And I just want to say why I think LGB Alliance attracts more of this kind of vilification than um, most other groups which are fighting for, for um, similar rights, uh, grassroots women's organisations fighting uh, similarly to uh, retain the importance of biological sex and single-sex basis. And also, what we do is we disrupt the narrative 
The, the narrative has been you support LGBT rights, you support LGBTQ rights, you support LGBTQIA plus rights. You must support all those things as if they were all belong together. Now, otherwise you're you're transphobic, you're homophobic, you're a bigot, you're a, you're you're a, all these things, uh, Nazi, Ku Klux Klan, whatever. Uh, unless you support all these people. So what happened was that we said, hang on, we stand specifically. As, as I said right at the beginning, for people with same-sex sexual orientation who've got completely lost, completely lost in this very long st alphabetic string. And if you look at, in, in Wales, for instance, the LGBTQ plus action plan, it's all about gender. Mm. It's all about gender identity. There's there's no LGBT, there's hardly any lesbian, is it not mentioned? So we've got lost. So we, we resuscitated the idea that same-sex se sexual orientation is a thing. That disrupts the narrative. Yeah. And that is why we are considered so dangerous, because we say, no, it's not homophobic to oppose gender identity. It's not homophobic to question um, what um, um, male-bodied people are doing in women's sport. I mean, and that was quite, quite interesting because Stonewall um, came out, for instance, um, against the World Rugby's decision to say, no, you can't have male-bodied people in, in women's rugby because it's, it's unsafe. And they had, and there was four pages of citations of really, really well argued, uh, um, scientific, um, studies showing that it was unsafe. It was a very, very well founded decision. And Stonewall came out against it. And this is, I think this is awful. This brings the LGB rights movement into disrepute. The idea that, that, um, it's somehow homophobic to stand up for women's rights. And so we disrupt that narrative. We say no. Uh, and when I, um, got on, uh, refuted, um, rejected um, Stonewall's decision or position on this issue and said LGB Alliance supports safety and fairness in women's sport. We got far more support than the opposite. It's, we represent, we believe we represent a very, very substantial proportion of LGB people and we disrupt that narrative and that is why we are feared and hated by our detractors because they know we're right and they know that once the, the message gets out there, people will support us. All they have to do is to call us horrible names and to try to stop us speaking. And the way they stop us speaking is if we're invited on, we have never been on BBC television. But once we were, we were invited on BBC television, uh, this was Newsnight wanted somebody um, from Stonewall. Stonewall wouldn't come on. That is the tactic. And therefore, because they couldn't present both sides, we, we were disinvited. By refusing to engage with us, we don't get on. So those are the two tactics, suppression and um, vilification using horrible names. And it's all because we disrupt the narrative. We show, no, it is not homophobic to question these practices, to say that we don't need uh, rainbow-colored police cars or rainbow-colored trains in order to treat everybody decently. It's not necessary for, for, for NHS nurses to wear little badges saying that they support LGBTQ plus people um, in order to expect for everybody to be treated properly. We disrupt the narrative and that is why um, there is this campaign against us. I think that's a very good point and one that often gets overlooked, which is that frequently campaigns of censorship or campaigns of intolerance they seem like they are driven by a sense of authority and a sense of wanting to assert one's authority over those who are wrong. But actually, they often come from a point of defensiveness and an unwillingness to defend one's own argument. In Stonewall's case, it's argument that 
gender is more important than sex and so on. And so therefore they go for demonization. They go for the easy approach of saying, well, our opponents are just the scum of the earth and therefore we don't need to engage with them and it would be problematic if we did. But just to keep sticking on this issue for a while, um, just a couple more questions is there's the viciousness of the invective that has been aimed at the LGB alliance as well, um, which is, I find really disturbing. In fact, I'm just about old enough to remember in the 1980s when um, it would have been certain tabloid newspapers or Christian fundamentalists or a few kind of extreme people on the right who would have taken this kind of approach to pro-homosexual groups who would have said, we can't allow them to speak, we have to deprive them of the oxygen of publicity, we have to ban their literature, we have to assault their magazines or any magazine that supports them, which happened with Boys Magazine when it dared to promote an LGB alliance discussion. So it really brings to mind that kind of homophobic assault on the freedom of speech of gay rights activists that we saw 30 or 40 years ago, but it's now been rehabilitated. But just in relation to the party conference season, so the LGB alliance became one of the big talking points of party conference season, mainly simply because you were there, which, as we know, some people consider to be unacceptable. So you were at the Conservative Party conference. Uh, there was a big fuss about it, and I thought it was pretty good that you guys stayed there. You weren't kicked out. You had those discussions. Uh, could you explain to me, to us what, what it's like for someone like you from your more progressive background that you come from, from the GLF right through all the other work that you've been doing over the years, what it's like when you only find a welcome home at the Tory party conference and what it feels like to know that if you had been at the Labour Party conference, it would have been a very different story. What what do you think that tells us about right and left and where we fit in these things now? We did apply for a stand at a Labour um, Party conference, and it's very unfortunate that we were reje- rejected since so many of our supporters are present or past uh, members of the Labour Party. We are, as you know, non-party political uh, supporters come from from all of the mainstream parties uh, or affiliations. Um, And so I do think that um, I don't know what our reception would be like at Labour. It would probably be a little bit more mixed because we know that there are many, many people in the Labour Party who support our views. And actually, what was very interesting, and we did get a, I think that the row was exaggerated, to be quite honest. There wasn't really much of a row. There were a few people who were very cross and therefore the media likes to make, make a great thing about the fact that a few people were very cross and one person was very, very cross. So that becomes huge row about LGB alliance. Uh, you know, we didn't not- notice much about huge row. We just noticed everybody being very polite and very friendly. M- many MPs came to talk to us and, uh, and were, were happy uh, that we were there. And we had very few negative interactions. Um, one, one uh, when I tried to talk to Erwin Jones, which was not very successful. <laughs> but, uh, so it, uh, the point is that we must make contact um, across the board. And one of the most interesting things I thought that happened is that we had good contact with the LGBT conservatives um, and um, these two groups that were both there. And we want to build bridges. We, we want debate. We want discussion. This is precisely what we've wanted from the beginning. There has to be a public debate about sex and gender, and it has to be across all political parties. And it's very unfortunate that, that the Liberal Democrats and the Greens in particular have taken uh, a very peculiar road there. And, and Labour, as you see, is also um, r- refusing to acknowledge reality. And that 
that's that's dangerous when people refuse to acknowledge reality. So yes, the Conservatives are now in power. We're very pleased with the way that Liz Truss and Kemi Badenoch have been um, approaching these issues, a very measured and, and sensible um, approach. And um, obviously, we, we're very supportive of these efforts in part of the government, um, of the government to to support the rights of women and LGB people and not to allow this capture of our institutions by this rather peculiar, I don't know whether you want to call it a dogma or an ideology, to carry on. We, we need to reverse it. We need to recapture our allegiance to impartiality, to open discussion, to get rid of the climate of fear, to allow people to express views respectfully and to stop this this assault on our reality and on our language. That brings me towards the final question I want to ask you, and maybe you've covered a bit of it there, which is what the LGB Alliance plans to do in the future. So I was very pleased to hear that you have a conference coming up. And it's funny, when I heard about the conference, I thought, well, that probably means that these guys are here to stay. And the conference is called Here to Stay, so I was quite pleased about that. <laughs> and uh, that does indicate that even though there is this, there has been, it's from certain quarters, this tsunami of invective against the LGB alliance, that you are going to persevere with the incredibly important project that you have uh, kicked off. And as you say, and uh, I think um, there, I, I'm a firm believer that there is a groundswell of common sense in the British public and that they do not like bully boys and they do not like it when people are silenced. And um, there has been a much broader acceptance of gay rights and women's rights over the past in recent decades. And they probably do not like the sight of a gay rights group being vilified in the way that you have been. So I think there's there's a lot of that to tap into. But what do you see the LGB Alliance doing in the future? What road do you see it taking in order to pursue those aims you've just lined out now in terms of defending reality, defending reason, and defending the freedom of gay people to organise as they see fit? Well, obviously, um, the, the, the whole um, the first two years were trying to establish ourselves, explaining why we exist, uh, uh, and to some extent sort of explaining why the, 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 the omelette needs to be unscrambled in terms of looking at the difference between sexual orientation and, and sexual uh, gender identity. We are having a great conference um, on the 21st of October at the QE2 Centre with politicians, with, with people from all walks of life. This is going to be a, a, a fantastic event, and I hope that more people uh, will be able to come. You can look go on our, our, our website, um, lgballiance.org.uk, and through there to Eventbrite and, and book tickets for this event. What we want to do, now that we're a, a registered charity, of course, since we've only been a registered charity for a couple of months and we've been sort of organising in, in, this, in this new way, which also takes time to put uh, all the structures in place. And what we want to do, um, first and foremost, is to have a helpline, an online resource for teenagers who are, or young adults, struggling with their sexual orientation. At the moment, this doesn't exist. All the resources uh, tend to be focused on gender identity, and that is very unfortunate for, for young people who are, who are um, struggling with their sexual orientation and who would like um, to be referred to for some kind of counselling. So that's, that's a major point. And then we want to revive lesbian, gay, bisexual culture which has has sort of um, kind of collapsed a bit under this onslaught 
from the gender identity um, extremists. And, and that's a, a really important thing. We want to do polling to find out what people really think, but polling without leading questions and without self-selecting respondents, which is what we've had in the past. Real polling and research. It's important to get real research, for instance, on detransitioners so that people stop trotting out these same old tired and in completely false statistics. There's a lot of work to be done. And above all, we have to create positive role models for young people growing up, gay, lesbian or bisexual, that they feel happy um, with their sexual orientation and do not think that there's something wrong with their bodies. Bev, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.